0: KQED in San Francisco. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As a writer, Katherine Schultz inspires a sense of awe in me. In her new memoir, Lost and Found, she takes the stuff of everyday life, her father's death, a new love, and makes it both achingly tiny and precise, like a painting etched on a grain of rice, as well as vast and grand. As the essayist Marilyn Robinson wrote of the book, our lives deserve and reward the kind of honest, gentle, brilliant scrutiny Schultz brings to bear on her own life. My first impulse was just to have her read passages for the hour, but we'll actually talk, I promise, about grief, that first kiss, and making the choice to confront the big old world with amazement, rather than terror. That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Katherine Schultz's Lost and Found tells the intertwined story of losing her father, Isaac, and finding her love, C. In one long pulse of life. There are funny moments in the sad parts and sorrowful reflections in the happy. Through the different seasons and moods of the book, the whole thing sparkles with Schultz's multifaceted curiosity. If a memoir maps an interior landscape, this one is so detailed and alive that it seems like one of those old oil paintings you want to set foot into. Sun streaming down on American wilderness, perhaps somewhere on the eastern shore of Maryland which is now her adopted home. I'm so happy to have her with us here this morning. Welcome New Yorker staff writer, Catherine Schultz.
3: Alexis, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: (laughs) So I want people to hear what this book sounds like. I want to have you read something for us. And I want people to kind of meet your family who are sort of the epitome of word people. Um, So maybe you could read uh, that first passage we've talked about.
3: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, You don't really need to know much going into this because we're very early in the book. Uh, We're just getting to know my father. Uh, Really all you need to know is that he's got a very heavy accent because he speaks six languages, uh, Yiddish, Polish, Hebrew, German, French, and English. It was my mother, a French teacher and wonderfully lucid grammarian who taught me how to work with language, how to pronounce epitome, when to use the subjunctive, how to distinguish who from whom but it was my father who taught me how to play with it. Thanks to his polyglot background, he had a relativist's relationship to the rules of grammar and usage. He did not defy them exactly, but he loved to bend a phrase right up to the breaking point before letting it spring back into place, reverberating wildly. I have never met anyone else who could generate such surprising sentences on the fly, nor anyone else who derived as much fun from just speaking. When I expressed disbelief at the epitome correction, he furnished, in an instant, an unforgettable mnemonic device. It rhymes with, you gotta be kidding me.
0: <laughs> I love this passage. I think it says a lot about who your father became. But how did he, how did he get there? I mean, these six languages, uh, was, was acquired in school? Or did he you know, live the kind of life that meant you kind of had to learn languages to get by?
3: Yeah, the latter definitely, and and you've asked a wonderful question, which is how did my father become this incredibly fun, funny, brilliant, joyful human being? Uh, because the the conditions of his early life did not really conduce to that or suggest that it would happen. Uh, my father was born in Tel Aviv when it was still a part of Palestine uh, to a. Uh, Polish mother who had been essentially sent there as a, as a teenager um, when it became clear that war was going to break out, was going to uh, break out all over Europe. Um, she had been born and raised in a shtetl in Poland to a very large Jewish family. Uh, and in fact, uh, her family was right to try to save at least one of their children. Uh, of the other 12, all but one perished in Auschwitz, as did her parents. So my father, you know, was was born into a family that was already on the brink of enormous tragedy, and and my grandmother, my paternal uh, grandmother, never recovered from that understandably Uh, and the family was also always uh, really financially precarious uh, and and my dad had a nomadic early life they were always fleeing either violence or poverty and uh, started in Tel Aviv uh, wound up surprisingly in Germany right after the war of Mm -hmm. all places and then eventually uh, made their way uh, via refugee visas to Detroit which is where my father uh, was raised from about age 12 on.
0: Before settling down where you grew up, yeah, in the kind of yes. suburbs.
3: Yes. Uh, you know, again, my the, the distance between my father's uh, childhood and adult life is is roughly equivalent uh, in sort of class terms to the distance between his uh, childhood emotional circumstances and his adult self. Uh, <laughs> yes, I grew up in this incredibly, like, you know, coddled upper middle class, uh, basically upper class suburb of Cleveland, Shaker Heights.
0: hmm and when you were growing up in Shaker Heights, your father was this kind of larger than life figure who had a tendency like, uh, you know, Albert Einstein to lose <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. This seems to be one of the themes that who's so busy finding things in his own mind or out in the world so interesting that other things were constantly being lost.
3: It's true. My father um, had this kind of sublimely indifferent relationship to material objects. They sort of like wafted into his life and wafted out of it. <laughs> he couldn't keep track of anything, you know, um, his phone, his wallet. It was a disaster for my father when cell phones came along, because, of course, you know, it's a highly expensive object that you if you're my father, you lose twice a week. Uh, but yes, he, um, he it's it's interesting. You know, we have this stereotype about the absent minded professor, someone who is so brilliant that um, apparently their mind is just too busy doing more important things to bother to remember things like, you know, where their shoes are or or where the telephone bill is or what have you. Uh, But it was funny for me because I grew up in a um, mixed household in this sense because my mother, by contrast, is incredibly organized and orderly and always knows where everything is. So there was this kind of lifelong comedy routine between the two of them with respect to, you know, where on earth my father's belongings were.
0: I think it's, sort of a, a beautiful merging of their personalities that you take after your mother in the sense that you are organized. And one of the things you do with that organization in this book is to create these incredible catalogs of things that were lost, in fact, uh, you know, both w- within your father's life, himself, him getting lost, him wearing two different pairs of shoes uh, on a family vacation, uh, as well as many uh, smaller things. But when we get kind of to we, we after we get this incredible introduction to your father, we know what's coming. You know, you don't you don't hide anything here that your father is is the kind of sick that sort of is not one specific thing, but is just a, a body kind of breaking down.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, it's it's funny. I think um there are we, we live in a culture that is full in good ways, I think, of, of narratives yeah. of sickness. You know, uh, we, we have an awareness about cancer and an openness about talking about it that we didn't used to have. And, and the same thing for many kinds of terminal diseases. And a curious thing about my father is he didn't really have a terminal disease. You know, I mean, he had life, which is its own kind of terminal <laughs> disease. But, you know, he just um, things kept going wrong. Uh, in a way that I think is is not uncommon in old age, but is a little bit less focused on than these stark, you know, you have lung cancer or you have Parkinson's or whatever, because they're so inspecific, you know. Um, my dad had cardiac issues, he had blood pressure issues, he had a mysterious autoimmune disorder that was probably driving a lot of the problems, you know, at various points, his kidneys were a crisis, his liver was a crisis, <laughs> you name it. Uh, and it's an interesting kind of breakdown to witness because, no one can tell you like, oh, your father has stage four old age. You know, it's like you just at some point kind of realize, I, I don't know that all of this collectively is survivable, but it's an easy realization to put off in some ways because because no doctor is going to confront you with it. And if you're like me, at least you really just cling to hope for as long as it's possible to do so. So I, I think I was quite slow to recognize that actually, yes, my father was dying, even though for quite some time, all the evidence was there. Yeah.
0: And as it, the day sort of approached, one of the beautiful things about this book is that the life that your father lived generated uh, a, a period of dying that was in which he was surrounded by people who loved him and told him how much he was loved. And you, you end up writing at one point, all of this makes dying sound meaningful and sweet. And it is true that if you were lucky, there's a seam of sweetness and meaning to be found within it, a vein of silver in a dark cave a thousand feet underground. Still, the cave is a cave. And the, the actual setting of that cave, in your case, is really the hospital. The hospital becomes <laughs> this place... That's hard to be in. That's cold. That's cave-like for you.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's interesting. I I should say right up front that I wrote this passage about my father dying and, and being with him while he was dying before the pandemic began. And I have thought an enormous amount since then about actually how unbelievably lucky we all were to get to sit with my father for days on end while he was dying. Um, mm-hmm. I'm mindful that. I think one of the most difficult things the pandemic took from people aside from just literally their loved ones was, was the ability to be there when someone was dying and to sit with them. And uh, Mm -hmm. as, as brutal as it was to do so, I'm very grateful to have had the chance because it did also feel precious in some ways and meaningful in some ways, but, but that's exactly sort of what I'm getting at in that passage. And a lot of this book is about the the sort of um, unavoidable mixedness of life experience. Like, yes, it is meaningful to be with someone when there's dying. Yes, it's Quite sweet to find how how deeply and straightforwardly we can communicate our love to people when we know we're about to lose them. Um, it's also awful, obviously. Yeah. Obviously, and there's someone someone you love is dying. Of course, it's terrible, and, and it's all of those things at once. But yes, I, you know, with the with the you know pre pandemic conditions, um, hospitals. It did not feel like. A particular luxury to be in a hospital. Uh, and, and I think many people will know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, um, Quite a lot of our American dying takes place in hospitals these days. And there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I do want to um, just acknowledge how in some ways peaceful that kind of death can be. And frankly, part of why Uh, we we chose hospice care but we kept my dad in the hospital it was actually very clear to all of us he would have preferred to die in the hospital (laughs) he did not have any romance about dying at home Uh, he had uh, by that point in his life a lot of respect for doctors and and a lot of uh, understandable romance for things that could keep him out of pain uh, and and give him a sense of safety in a way that I think for some people a hospital really can Um, so there's there's a lot to be said for it and I we had a wonderful experience with hospice care within the hospital, but yeah, I mean hospitals are just really hard places to be unless you're there for the rare joyful reason, you know, the birth of a child or something, and uh, and. You know, in the book, I sort of compare it to basically being stuck in an airport, meaning part of what's difficult is you're having this like existentially gripping experience, but you're having it in the most sort of physically banal, annoying, uncomfortable environment you could possibly be in. And, you know, the food is bad and overpriced and it's a million miles through like six different corridors and elevators to wherever you're going. Right, right.
0: Uh, we're talking with New Yorker staff writer Catherine Schultz about her memoir Lost and Found. You're going to be hearing some country music uh, going into the breaks here because Catherine Schultz loves country music. When we come back, we're going to start talking about love and we want to hear from you. Share a moment with us where love and loss were intertwined in your life. Give us a call now, 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or KQED Forum, or the emails forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned.
1: I stop to see a weeping willow.
0: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with New Yorker staff writer Catherine Schultz about her memoir, Lost and Found. So the book does tell this intertwined story of love and loss. And I want to just sit for a while in the love that you found. I was actually listening to this section of your book, braising some chicken thighs, and literally just little tears kept spurting from my eyes as you described the series of moments when you knew almost instantly... Uh, that you were really in love, in love. Um, and before we have you read, I do want you to just set us up for a minute. How did you meet this person you fell in love with who you call in the book, C? Uh,
3: sure, I'll do that. And also, um, I, I can talk about why I call her C, but I'm perfectly comfortable calling her by her full name, Casey, on the, on the program <laughs> okay. and identifying her as such. Uh, we met because, uh, it's so funny, you should say country music. We met because we have a mutual friend uh, who at the time we're now very close to her, but neither of us knew her terribly well at the time. But uh, but she knew us both vaguely and at some point kind of sent us an email saying, you know, you should, two should really meet someday. I think you'd really adore each other. Uh, in her telling, she actually was not trying to set us up. And to be honest, I think a lot of what jumped out to her was like, wow, these two freaks love country music. <laughs> and books, they also like books. They might have a lot to talk about. So she sent us this email, uh, which, you know, we wrote back and kind of, thanks, so nice to virtually meet you, whatever, whatever. And then months went by because uh, at the time I was living up in the Hudson Valley of New York and Casey was living uh, down where we both live now on the Eastern shore of Maryland and where she's from. Uh, But eventually she went on a road trip that happened to take her right past my house. So when she figured that out, she shot me a note and said, do you wanna get lunch? Uh, And I said, sure. and then, to be honest, kind of immediately regretted it because I was on deadline.
0: <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> and uh, actually for that, the, that earthquake piece, uh, which... Um, uh, which some you of know, you may remember, huge
0: New Yorker earthquake piece about what might happen if uh, there was a major earthquake off the Pacific Northwest coast, yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, at the moment it, it, it felt huge chiefly in the sense of like, it was extremely past due and extremely long and unwieldy. And so I thought to myself, all right, well, I need lunch anyway. I'm like going to go meet this random stranger, but 45 minutes tops. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so I walk into town and, uh, and we meet and we go into this little cafe and we sit in their outside patio and within like I, this is an honest estimate within 30 seconds, I, you know, deadline, schmetz right? And it, it wasn't that I knew right away, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to marry this woman, although I knew that very soon. It was that whatever had been on my mind, you know, the work, the deadline, what I was trying to do, you know, uh, what I was going to make for dinner, just utterly gone. Um, it was an amazingly absorbing conversation from the get-go. Um, and in this wonderful way, just like all depth, you know, it's you. You meet people, and most of the time, even if you wind up having a, a very profound connection with them, there's a lot of like you know, kind of surface stuff you wade through uh, to get there. And and somehow, kind of right away, we just found ourselves talking about our families and our values and and what we were reading and why it mattered to us and what we were working on. And it just in this wonderful way, just like time kind of fell away and uh sure enough my 45 minute lunch was like i don't know three and a half hours i I stopped looking at my watch i don't even know um i did not make my deadline (laughs) but i did marry the girl (laughs) well
0: and your second date was 19 days long so it kind of paled in comparison to the second date um and so the passage you're going to read from i believe is on the first night of those 19 days um and it is uh it is just a well, you just read it. People can find out what it is.
3: Yes, I will. It's actually before those 19 days. Uh, the 19 days were our second date. This is our first date, uh, which took place about five days after that lunch when she was heading back down south on her road trip. Uh, and Alexis, I don't know exactly where you want to get me to start, but uh, we'd just gone out for a walk, uh, and we came home from the walk. And I'll pick up there. Great. By the time we got back home and settled into my couch... I was intensely aware of how much I wanted to touch her and also how much I wanted to keep sitting there listening to her. It is my fault then that it was so very long past midnight when we finally kissed. I will not try to describe it except to say that I could. I mean that it is one of those rare moments out of only a handful each of us gets in a lifetime that remains imperishable in all its particulars. We had, by then, straight outside again. The moon had set, stars and quiet filled the sky. All around us, the universe was expanding, not from something, not into anything, all on its own, changing the scale of space, stretching the boundaries of existence. Gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and the weak, All the known and unknown forces were exerting themselves on the cosmos. If we felt them, if we ever feel them, we did not know it, brimming as we were with our own forces, spinning inside it all like the tiniest of Ptolemy's heavenly spheres. Afterward, I led her back indoors. For a long time after that, everything that wasn't her The house around us, the rest of the world, the passage of time, the past of the future, retreated into unimportance. The next morning, we woke up shy and happy and amazed in ways both large and small.
0: Mm. Catherine, I, I wonder, you know, you wrote this a few years ago, and I wonder if, you know, reading back on this just incredibly romantic, loving description, of that moment, how
3: do you how do you feel now reading it back? I feel honestly, it's it, it's so funny you should ask that because I I literally felt it reading it um, because I haven't revisited that passage in a while. I feel as lucky as I did that day, uh, and, and maybe more so. You know, we um, Casey and I now have this beautiful little five month old daughter, and I marvel every hour of every day at, at the kind of astonishment of finding her and and this life that we've built together and i can summon just so vividly the the feeling of those first days, you know? I mean, love is is a beautiful thing in part because it does change, you know, it deepens, it, it stops depending on mystery and and, and uh, not knowing everything about someone. And it becomes about knowing everything about someone and, and delighting in that, and then going and becoming new people together or becoming parents or just learning about the world in different ways. Uh, but, but those early days of just pure stunned, Joy, almost glee at at finding someone who's right for you that way, um, just come rocketing back to me all the time, yeah,
0: I mean, one of the things that I want listeners to sort of know about this book or that that really is, is worth thinking about is you know so many of the memoirs that have gotten a lot of attention in recent years are just totally wild stories, or they're like extremely tragic, you know, they're just. Mm-hmm deeper and deeper into the darkness of of humanity and this the project of this memoir seems to be kind of the opposite this kind of rousing call for the interestingness and texture of happiness
3: mm, thank you for saying that um because yes that's that's exactly right it i uh it is it is that and it's also um i mean i didn't set about to to rousingly call anyone but sure let's go with it it's a rousing call i think also for for happiness but also for A kind of honoring of the everyday, you know. I mean, even if your life is dramatic in various ways, a lot of life is is about its everydayness and its ordinariness. And I I find ordinary life to be beautiful and fascinating and and difficult, and frankly, all the things that that unordinary life is uh, on, on a slightly different scale. So yes, it's very much a book about happiness. I mean, look, partly because, you know. You, you work with what you have I, I'm incredibly <laughs> fortunate you know life has sort of showered privileges and joys and good fortunes on me and I'm very mindful of that and uh, so stories that aren't that are not my stories to tell story to tell you know i'm 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 proximate to many of them I'm certainly proximate to my father's story uh, i'm I've been more proximate than I wish I had to, to various tragedies over my lifetime but but my most direct and immediate story is a story about happiness and ordinariness and and the ways that quite frankly you know, suffering and difficulty do suffuse even ordinary life. But okay. yes, I mean, this is not, um, it's not educated. It's not The Glass Castle. It's not Liar's Club. Uh, and I, I admire all of those books enormously, um, but I i didn't have a dramatic or unusual childhood. Um, I'm also not famous, so it's not a celebrity memoir, which is kind of the other <laughs> register in which these things sometimes work. So yes, I mean, I what I had to tell was, was a, um, a very everyday story in some ways, you know, I think a lot about, um, there's this wonderful Martin Amos line about the ordinary tragedy and the ordinary miracle. You know, the ordinary tragedy is two people walk into a room and one walks out and the ordinary miracle is two people walk into a room and three walk out <laughs> and, and that's it, right? I mean, death and birth and, and, and falling in love is kind of the whole shebang. If, if you don't have drastic other things happening in your life and yet, oh my gosh, like who needs more than that, right? I mean, it's a lot. <laughs>
0: You know, I I wondered if, given your father's, like, just extraordinary background and the distance, you know, both literal and metaphorical, that he traveled to come to an ordinary suburban life, like, I wondered if that really rubbed off. I mean, in one passage of the book, you say, you know, my sister in adulthood once put this very beautifully. Our parents, she said, had given us a love of ideas and also the idea of love.
3: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I think um, my both of my parents uh, were remarkable parents, remarkable people, but remarkable parents too. My mother still is; she's alive and well, and still a wonderful mother, now a wonderful grandmother. Uh, but it's interesting. I do think my father chose on the side of joy and chose on the side of a, a stable and everyday life, um, because certainly it wasn't offered to him and. There was nothing in particular that that required him to make those kinds of choices. I mean, there's a lot of ways to live with familial trauma and generational trauma, but it's very clear to me that my father wanted very much for his children to have the childhood he didn't, you know, a stable childhood in one place where we would not grow up terrified about uh, financial precarity, and we would not grow up terrified about physical peril. Uh, And above and beyond all of those kind of you know basic almost subsistence needs, where we would grow up just in this atmosphere of abundance, you know, abundant resources, but but more to the point, abundant love, you know, and unconditional love, and and a sense that the world was fascinating and fun and and rewarded looking at it and paying attention to it, and I do think those were all um, very deliberate on his part, mm-hmm. and I'm grateful, obviously, every day, and I think about it a lot now that I'm a parent myself.
0: When you know, the book is not structured like this, but you and Casey already knew each other and were in love when your father um, begins to to go into the final stages of kind of feel health and, and die. And so you actually experienced that grief, you know, obviously alone in the way that we all experience the death of loved ones alone, but but also with her as well. Like that was part of this kind of intertwining of love and, and loss.
3: Mm, that's right. And yes, I mean, writing is so fascinating, right? Because you have to make certain choices and sometimes your hand is really forced, you know, you make one choice and, and then a bunch of what you know, as well as I do, a bunch of other choices flow from it. And it was very clear to me that this book had to begin in, in loss and grief and then move on to, to love and joy. And then to this third project of kind of uniting them or talking about the ways they're naturally united. And a, a curious consequence of that is that Casey, barely appears, there's like a passing mention because it was sort of structurally necessary. But she barely appears in the first part of this book for the good reason that we have not yet met her as, as readers, you know, uh, and, um, but of course, yes, in reality, um, she was at my side throughout my father's decline and death. Uh, and, you know, look, on the one hand, I'm grateful every single day that they got to meet each other. Uh, it was amazingly meaningful to me and I, I think would be very hard for me uh, to have a partner who had never met my father because he feels so sort of central to who I am uh, and I, I write about it, that, that meeting in the book it was a really joyful scene to write uh, on the other hand you know we sort of got like one of everything you know like we had one Thanksgiving together mm-hmm. and, and one New Year's and one Passover and you know one of my parents anniversary and, and then it was just over uh, and it's it's hard I'm on the one hand as I said profoundly grateful but it just felt like such little time for them to know each other and, and for my family of origin and, and the family I was making for myself to actually get to kind of coexist in this world.
0: Yeah. We're talking with New Yorker staff writer, Catherine Schultz, about her memoir, Lost and Found. And we'd like to hear from you. Maybe you can share a moment with us where love and loss were intertwined in your own life. Or or another way we could go is, you know, do you find happiness actually harder to share with people than sadness or, or difficult moments, particularly during these last few years, you know, maybe even going, going back to 2016, where things have, many things have seemed so heavy, when something great is going on in your life, that modeling uh, is, is difficult to describe. So give us a call, 866-733-6786, that's 866-733-6786, or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed. Dot org. You know, I mean, this book really tries to reckon with what death is, not just sort of how it feels. And that's kind of where the, the book, it gets this sort of tremendous size to the project. Like you're, you're using your own life and painting these intimate portraits of moments of, of love and loss. But then you're like, what does all this mean? <laughs> um, and what was it like to kind of try to take on that eternal question?
3: Um, uh, well, I mean, hopeless, right? Please, please don't ask me on air what life means. You're like, I've settled it. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, hopeless and, and also necessary, um, partly because I think, look, uh, experiencing death and grief calls on us to think about what on earth it is and what it means. I, I think that's part of why it's so hard. There's not an easy answer to that. And it's very, um, it's very painful to move through the emotional experience of grief uh, when you don't really understand why such a thing should ever have to happen. And I think fundamentally all of us at some point or another realize we don't understand why this has to happen, even if it's a sort of childish feeling like why death why suffering Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's kind of the opposite of a childish feeling, right? Like why suffering is, is sort of the central or one of the central concerns of philosophy and certainly of theology. So it felt necessary uh, because it felt very much a part of the experience of grief to wonder why, why life is this way. Um, and it also felt, I mean, look, part of it just felt like this is how my mind works. You know, I'm (laughs) I'm drawn to abstractions and to sort of categories of human experience. And I'm certainly, I I think a lot about mortality. Um, but you know, I think it's also, it's interesting. I, I talk a lot in the book about, uh, How Casey and I have very different cosmologies. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's a devout Lutheran and uh, has has never doubted the existence of God. And it's just a a sort of central and anchoring part of her sense of of the universe and its workings. And I have never felt the existence of God and don't believe it to be a central part of the existence Mm -hmm. of the universe and its workings. And so, you know, there's a way that thinking about and, and trying to make sense of why life is the way it is and, and why the terms of it uh, are so stark and strange and hard, hard to understand felt uh, and, and feels like a sort of ongoing conversation in our relationship and, and part of what gives it the sort of depth and interest that it has. Um, but it also just felt to me on some level, you know, a book that was very influential for me in writing this book was C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, which mm-hmm. um, for those who haven't read it, it's a beautiful, beautiful, devastating, very slim little book uh, about the death of C.S. Lewis's wife. Uh, but it was interesting for me to read because, um, you know, Lewis was a very devout Christian and an incredibly knowledgeable one. And he's reckoning with his wife's death, but he's really, really reckoning with this sense of, you know, having been... Um, you know, betrayed by God. And I did feel like it begged a secular response. And on some level, that's what I tried to write.
0: We're talking with New Yorker staff writer, Katherine Schultz, about her memoir, Lost and Found. Share a moment with us where love and loss were intertwined in your life. Or if you've got a questions for Katherine Schultz about her, this book, give us a call, 866-733-6786. The email address is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal, this is Forum. Stay tuned for more after a short break. fly
1: all of them gone. Nothing blue skies. From now
2: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission.
0: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with New Yorker staff writer Catherine Schultz about her memoir, Lost and Found. And I wanted to add Sean from Oakland into the conversation. Welcome, Sean.
5: Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, hey. Hey, um, so just a quick question about, um, you know, what the author thinks about um, the definition of happiness in the age of social media, because... Um, we see trends on uh, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok or whatever platform for people to kind of only post good things that are happening in their lives, like when they're on the beach or when they're on vacation or what have you. Um, But you don't really see the other half of their life uh, whenever they have loss or setbacks. Um, So I'm just wondering what the author thinks about that. And then also studies regarding uh, time spent on these platforms and uh, there's reports that, you know, you spend 10, 15, 20 minutes on Facebook and you feel worse about yourself because you see all these people living a better life than you. But it's really only one side
0: of their lives. Thanks for that, Sean. And, you know, Catherine, I just wanted to uh, add a little bit to that as well. You know, before the break, you were talking about our of uh the what the answers were for sort of exploring what death was and I think one of your answers is almost the exact opposite of social media in some ways it's kind of the infinite depth of the natural world
3: mm. yeah I mean I I hate to wax too prescriptive because one of the things I love about human beings is we're wildly different and uh, and therefore, derive joy from wildly different things, which seems to me a delightful feature of our existence. But it's certainly true that for me, I am grounded and stabilized and um, brought back to a kind of deep okayness if I'm sad or uh, or brought to astonishing levels of joy if I'm happy or at baseline by, by being in the world by being outside and looking up or looking around. Uh, I have a particular fondness for mountains. I like the long view. I like to feel like I'm kind of looking out over the world and marveling at its scale and mystery. Um, I'm not that said, you know, in, I should be very clear. I don't, um, I don't have any professional background in, in how to help people confront suffering and difficulty and pain. And I'm certainly not a tech expert, although anecdotally, yeah, I can't say that like social media has ever made me happier, particularly. Um, It's useful sometimes, actually, occasionally as a writer, it's been very useful to me. Uh, And and I've gone in and out of love affairs and anti-love affairs with it. (laughs) But I don't think it's a, I mean, when I think about the kind of joy I'm describing in my book, which is the joy that you derive from a very Deep and focused human connection. That does feel to me uh, quite different from what most of us get most of the time from social media. And I I certainly think to the question of people sort of sh- showing off their best lives and obscuring the rest on the internet, um, I, you know, a lot of this book is about the intertwinedness of our best moments and our worst ones and about the sort of inevitability of confronting both of them and, and some of them causing the other, you know, you can't really love someone without uh, risking feeling a lot of pain or grief somewhere down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I certainly don't um, advocate for shearing off either side of life from the other. I actually think a lot of the internet and in modern culture is really invested in um, difficult moments too, in some ways, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and in emphasizing them, some of which I think is healthy and good and, and is a reaction to, you know, decades or more of people not feeling free to express their their pain and their hurt. So I think it's important, but I, I don't know that, um, I mean, inevitably, neither one is a very complete picture of life as we actually live it, which is profoundly mixed.
0: Yeah. And, you know, uh, we have one last reading for you to do here that actually really speaks directly to, uh, that, um, do you want to, uh, just, uh, read to us a little bit more? Sure. Um, uh, this, this is towards the end of the book.
3: Yeah, it's quite near the end of the book. And, um, the only thing you need to know kind of heading into it is that I've been writing about, uh, this, you know, terrible fear that, uh, at some point my this love of my life will vanish or she will die. And uh, of course, that's, that's not a fear, it's a fact. <laughs> I'm, I'm grappling with how to think about it. Ah, sorry, specifically I'm grappling with um, the notion that she will uh, die before, that, before I do. Whether or not that comes to pass, however, the larger issue remains. We will each die, C and I, and in addition to the how and the when, we are now both afflicted with the lover's haunting question of which one of us will do so first. I imagine that many spouses have made each other unkeepable promises, have talked, as he and I have done, about dying together in very old age in our sleep, entering death as we have entered almost every night and morning of our shared life, holding each other close, grateful, and at peace. Has any couple in the history of the world been so lucky? perhaps one or two, but the odds are grievously against us. In all likelihood, one of us will leave the other alone in bed at night, alone on waking up to face the day. Me, if we go by actual aerial tables, because I am older. C, if we go by premonitions, because she had one when she was a little girl about dying young. A story I wish she had never told me, because now and then it fills me with a dread as huge and as cold as the ocean. I do not want to die. It is impossible to overstate how true that is, but I would rather face my own death than survive hers. I cannot imagine that I will ever stop feeling this way, even if I am lucky and my fears for sea prove as premature as my childhood ones for my parents, and we are still tending our wildflowers together, half a a century hence. Yet even in that case, I know how little bomb once the time comes all that time will be. I have never forgotten a heartbreaking letter, a heartbreaking line in a letter I once received. How fortunate I have been. And yet I wanted it to last longer. That was from my great uncle, widowed after 62 years. Mm. If anything, like all shadows, this one that trails behind love grows longer later in the day. When I was a child, death seemed like a contingency an emergency, even though I understood in the abstract that it would come for all of us eventually. But after my father died, I began to feel its inevitability. And I know that it will only grow more present with each passing year. We find things and lose things at all stages of life, but the overall distribution shifts over time and loss strikes both more often and with more devastating intimacy as we age. And so the kind of difficulties we face shift as we grow older, too. The first problem that love presents us with is how to find it. But the most enduring problem of love, which is also the most enduring problem of life, is how to live with the fact that we will lose it.
0: It's a beautiful passage. Thank you so much for reading it, Catherine. I want to add Rebecca. Rebecca from Sunnyvale into our conversation. Welcome, Rebecca.
1: Hi. I wanted to say that my meeting my husband was intimately bound up with my mother's death. Although they never got to meet, about um, six months before my husband and I were on touch online, um, my mother died. And about two weeks before that, she said, "I want you to go on harmony. I want you to find someone." Mm-hmm. And even though I never did that. Um, I did meet my husband online, um, and after we had written to each other back and forth for about three weeks, we met in person. And about three months later, we were engaged. And the next morning, I called my father to tell him, and I put my husband on the line. And my father says, "I've been praying for Rebecca that she would find someone to meet. She would find someone to live with for the last since she was 25 years old." And when my husband got off the phone and told me that, I thought, oh, my mom always did things faster, six months and boom, boom, boom. And she would have loved
3: my husband. Gosh, what a wonderful story. I, um, I can only imagine how bittersweet that is. I, I just love the notion that your mom kind of prodded you to do this thing that then brought this new great love and stabilizing force in to take care of you when she no longer could. That's truly beautiful.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca, for sharing that with us. We've got a couple other stories uh, coming in on on comments. I just wanted to read a couple. Uh, Junior writes, I was adopted and had to grieve the loss of my adoptive father, not because he died, but because he was abusive, and I had to end that relationship as a boundary of survival. However, in that loss, grieving it, and moving through the process of forgiveness— it opened my life and heart to finding my birth father, which I ultimately did, and now I am healing old trauma through my relationship with my birth father and experiencing new forms of love through him that I never imagined were possible. Wow. Uh, and I'll give you, uh, I'll give you one more, Catherine. Maybe you can just reflect on these, uh, some of these stories in the context mm-hmm. of sort of your understanding of, of grief and loss. Rachel writes, 2020 saw the loss of my grandfather at 90 in late January. My mother passed in March. My brother worked so hard through November and December to make a wonderful Christmas, my mother's favorite holiday, one like she would want, where she would make the house explode with wrappings and decorations and the ridiculous saccharine tacky type of joy she loved. But he died from COVID on December 16, 2020, and no one came to Christmas that year or the next. My partner Rory was able to meet the most important people in my life and share our most beloved holiday. He proposed in February 2021, and our wedding will be in December this year. I hope in sharing this day with the man I love and joining families that I can embody a true Christmas again for my mother's memory of joy and to fulfill what my brother had worked so hard for and make some brightness in what has been several dark winters.
3: Gosh, I have to say... You know, a thing I didn't really anticipate in writing this book because I do not normally write so personally about myself is the extent that other people would just simultaneously break my heart and, and restore my faith in humanity. I'm I'm honestly awed and humbled every day now by how much heartbreak people carry around with them and the incredibly beautiful things they managed to do with it. And I, I would say that of, of both of the stories you just told me, i I find it very moving to use the rupture, the necessary rupture with one parent figure as a as a means to connecting with another and, and finding a loving relationship. And it's a beautiful example of a kind um, quite outside the scope of my book, but identical to the theme of my book of, of how these experiences of loss and discovery are strangely but kind of chronically and constantly entwined. Uh, and you know, to your second caller, contributor, I I would say I, you know, this pandemic era has been so devastating and uh, that is a a particularly burdensome and, and terrible line of losses. And, you know, I, it's been really strange and shocking to have this book come out in the pandemic. It wasn't conceived in the pandemic. Much of it wasn't written in the pandemic. And yet all of these themes about Mm-hmm. loss uh, and, and grief, but also this kind of andness, this like omnipresent conjunction of love and grief in our life have just been so dominant recently. And uh, I'm, I'm in awe of her ability to imagine her way forward to another bright holiday and to joy because it is it's devastating what these last yeah. couple of years have taken from people.
0: Let's bring in Joshua from San Francisco.
5: Hi there. Um, thank you guys for your call, and um, you know, for touching on such a deeply, deeply moving topic. Um, I've had a long, long experience with death and grief, and how to process it. When I was, I grew up in a really bad neighborhood in the Central Valley. When I was five years old, um, I saw someone get stabbed in front of me, and they died in front of me. Um, and I never kind of, I've never forgot the, the, the fear in his eyes, and I didn't fully understand that fear until I watched my grandparents die and my, my fiancé's dad died. Um, when my grandparents died, I was there, and, you know, there's, there's some truth to saying that when some people are ready, you can see the joy in their eyes, you know, and, and they've lived a full life, and they're, they're happy. And the, the, most, the last death that I witnessed was my fiancé and her father was just so scared. Um, mm. And after that death, I kind of went through my feelings and searched my emotions, and I'm at a point in my life now where I think death is, is beautiful, and this life is
0: Oh, no, Joshua, we had lost you. But it was a a beautiful sentiment to to end on. And, Catherine, I just wanted to ask you, you know, that moment you describe, you know, it's really quite an extended moment in, in your life as your father was dying. What did you find there for yourself? And, you know, Joshua seemed to have had several different experiences of, of watching that and getting different things from each experience What would you find
3: yeah i admire joshua for his uh his ability to feel that he now finds death beautiful and, and can face it with that degree of peace and acceptance and, and possibly even joy uh, i don't think i'm quite there yet uh, although i think it's an admirable place to wind up uh you know, watching my father die again—not a, a, a tragic death uh, in old age, peacefully, surrounded by the people that he loved—actually made it so abundantly clear to me that even under the best of possible ex- circumstances, um, it's it's excruciating to lose someone you love. And I suppose the important part is that excruciating and meaningful are not mutually exclusive. In fact, um, and, and this might be the point of the book there. Mutually necessary. Uh, I, I could not have found his death so meaningful or so painful if I didn't love him as much as I did. And it does feel remarkable to kind of sit there at the boundaries of existence with someone and watch them cross over and know that you don't know what's happening. Uh, and in my father's case, I didn't even know what he was feeling in his last moments kind of on the side of life. I don't know if he was scared. I don't know if he was calm. I don't know if he found it beautiful. I certainly hope that
2: he did.
4: Mm.
0: You know, the other incredible, at least in my own life, boundary of existence moment is the moment when a child is born. Uh, You know, both my kids, I was in the room obviously, and there was just a crackle in the air and then they existed. Um, Did you have that experience with the birth of your child?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just astonishing, right? You know, at one moment, they aren't there. And it, it doesn't matter that you've spent nine months dreaming about them and thinking about them and asking each other questions and wondering and getting excited and getting your lives ready to the extent your life is ever ready. It's just they they, they aren't in the world and then they are. I mean, I know, of course, they're growing, they're forming, they're, they're in their mother, but, but they aren't there in your arms in the world, like part of our collective existence. And then all of a sudden they are, and it's just it's absolutely astonishing. And it's, it's, you know, it's trite for a reason, which is, it does, I think, happen every time you just cannot believe the miracle of this little creature suddenly coming to exist. And, you know, I I think the thing I was least prepared for was how instantaneously I had a sense of her as a person, <laughs> you know, which which who knows, life is long, and, and she might prove me wrong, but she just emerged into the world with a kind of a, a kind of being, like an essence, just already intact. And I, you know, I'll never forget. I, I put her on Casey's chest, you know, three seconds after she was born. And Casey said, I love you so much. I still can't actually say it without tearing up, and and it's true. It's just like instantly, there's just this like enormous quantity of love present that that came out of nowhere the way your baby did.
0: Yeah, and yet, as people say, your heart's running around outside your body, and that mm. sense of perspective loss <laughs> haunts us all. Um, thank you so so much, New Yorker staff writer Catherine Schultz. Her beautiful beautiful memoir is Lost and Found. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine.
3: Thanks so much for having me. And
0: thank you to our listeners and callers and commenters for sharing those deeply personal stories. We so appreciate that and so sorry to have lost you, uh, Joshua, on the phone. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.
2: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way
4: So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer... He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. ...forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath